on today's episode, Should You Try Shockwave Therapy for PHT Recovery? Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, creator of the Run Smarter series, and a chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy battler. Whether you are an athlete or not, this podcast will educate and empower you in taking the right steps to overcome this horrible condition. So let's give you the right knowledge along with practical takeaways in today's lesson. All right, uh, once again, this is a shockwave episode from my pre- my other podcast, um, the Run Smarter podcast. I split that into two episodes where I talk with Benoit Matthew, who I'll introduce in a second. And um, it kind of got split up into the generic information that everyone should know to do with Shockwave. And then in episode two of that podcast, I break it down into certain conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles, um, and proximal hamstring tendinopathy. So what I've decided to do is kind of um, edit out all the unrelevant information and then just kind of squeeze it into one episode. So there will be a little bit of editing involved. Hopefully it's a bit seamless um, for your experience when you're listening. Um, But yeah, we're going to delve into Shockwave today, exactly what it is, exactly who is, um, who will favor or be the most beneficial for and what type of stage. And then, yeah, we'll talk about the proximal hamstring tendinopathy specifically later in this episode when I splice in episode two. Um, yeah, if you are enjoying this, um, if you are an Apple podcast listener, or if you are listening on an Android app that where you can subscribe, make sure you do so because then you get reminded, you get notifications and prompts whenever an episode does come out. Just because I'm doing releasing these episodes a little bit infrequently, different times, different days, different frequencies of the week. Um, it's always good to have it just pop up on your phone saying, hey, there's a new episode and you can find a time to listen to it. Uh, and also another prompt, just make sure that if you are getting a lot of benefit and you do have other, or you know other people that have proximal hamstring tendinopathy, feel free to share this out, F- share out the podcast, or if there's someone on social media or one of your friends asking about a specific topic, like oh, um, what ex- exercises should I do? What should I do? Shockwave, is it beneficial? Just share them the episode link and then um, start spreading the right information because that's what this is all about, right? Um, Cool. So uh, I will splice these two episodes together. Hopefully it's quite seamless and I will chime back in as usual at the very end to um, summarize and kind of talk about my key takeaways when it comes to PHT. So um, here we go. Benoit Matthew is an advanced practice physio, a sonographer, and teaches shockwave. He's done so for the last four or five years, and he has a special interest in hip, groin, and running injuries. And he doesn't like being called a shockwave therapist, but he is definitely the go-to when talking about shockwave, looking at the latest research in shockwave, and I couldn't think of a better guest. It was awesome having him on, and I hope you get a lot out of this. I always get a lot of questions around Shockwave on social media, so I hope so. Hopefully, this answers a lot of questions that you might have. Let's bring on Benoit Matthew. 
Uh, Benoit, welcome back to the Run Smarter podcast. How are you today? Uh, thanks, Barry, for, uh, for, the, for the invitation. It's great to be back and uh, really enjoyed last time. Yeah, fantastic. I, I have so many people on social media come to me with running injuries that are super chronic and they're like, will Shockwave benefit me? Um, I've had Shockwave. It hasn't worked in the past. Should I try again? There's so many questions around Shockwave and I can't think of a better person to have to, on the podcast to talk about this. And I just want to start off with a lot of runners. They don't have this medical background. They don't have the physio knowledge. So if you could start off with just explaining what exactly is Shockwave uh, as a treatment. Yeah, I think, you know, before we go straight into running injuries, uh, it's quite useful to look at the bigger picture of Shockwave. So, for example, if you Google Shockwave, you know, in a Google search, you're going to see it's been used in a variety of uh, different fields. So if you're a physio or somebody using Shockwave, or it, you need to know that it's sort of something been around for a long time. So it's been around for 40 years, first used in breaking kidney stones. Uh, so it's called as lithotripsy. So I think it was uh, 1970 where it was first used. So it's still used as one of the non-invasive option for uh, uh, breaking, you know, kidney stones and renal stones. It's used in cosmetic industries. It's used in wrinkle cellulite. It's used in men's health and women's health for chronic pelvic pain, erectile dysfunction. It's used in neurology for uh, spasticity, uh, and is used in um, you know a non-union. So I think it's sort of uh, is well established. So I think what we know is you've got a technology which has been around for about 40, 45 years, very safe, approved by the USFDA and, um, you know, nice guidelines. So it's very safe. So what we know is it's a very safe treatment. Um, and um, obviously there are some side effects which I can go through and it's not for everyone. There's a specific indication. So I think for me as a journey was, uh, as you might know, my special interest is lower limb. So I love treating active people, hip, you know, hip and groin, runners, Achilles. So I was sort of reaching a point where a lot of patients were getting better, obviously, with rehab and exercises. I would say there's a small, quite a significant group, I would say at least one in four or at least 20 to 30% of patients where despite good rehabilitation, they were still struggling with pain. Obviously, they had improvement. So this is sort of nine, 10 years ago. So I'm talking about patients with uh, runners with Achilles tendon and lateral hip pain and patellar tendon. And many of them didn't want injections or PRP and things like that. So that's where I stumbled ac across uh, Shockway and I looked at the literature and obviously, you know, there was some good literature, some not bad, and that's what got in my journey. So I think from a very simplistic point of view, when you talk about Shockway, uh, when I explain this to patients, I don't really use the word Shockwave. I say it's a high energy sound waves. So it's basically sound. It doesn't have any um, magnetism or, uh, ma you know, medic medications or anything else. It just uh, high energy sound waves. So if you look at, just to compare it for ultrasound, uh, the peak pressure of shockwave is at least thousand times more powerful than ultrasound. So you could you could do, use ultrasound on somebody for 15 hours, but what you can do that in 15 hours, you can deliver that in like one minute much quicker. So it's a very powerful high energy and it's naturally found in nature. Like when you have thunder um, in physics, it's called a sonic booms. Uh, it's powerful enough to break glasses. So uh, so it's sort of a modality which is sort of is used to kickstart the healing process by uh, it's a pro-inflammatory response. So what it does is it causes a bit of microtrauma because the idea is in chronic tendon, your body is not healing. It sort of reached a point where it's not kickstarting. So what we're trying to do is create a bit of controlled microtrauma. I guess it's quite similar with like deep friction massage or dry needling. 
But what it does is this and cause much damage on the skin. So it goes straight to the tissue, uh, causes a bit of inflammation, microtrauma. And then we know inflammation is not a bad thing uh, as long as it's not chronic. So your body just kickstarts the healing. So what do we do when, when my Mac is not working? What I do is just switch off and switch, start it again. So the same thing is you just like a reset button. So that's what I say to my patient. It's like a bit of a reset button to kickstart um, the healing process. And, uh, and the evidence is also quite good in lower limb. And if you're somebody like me who's been using, I've been using it for eight, nine years and been teaching for the last four years, you would quickly realize that it's very good in lower limb, but I'm not very impressed with the results in upper limb. So I would say in tennis syllable and shoulder, uh, I would say it's not something you're going to miss, but definitely in lower limb. My favorite, my top three would be is uh, plantar fasciitis, Achilles and lateral hip pain. So those three, I think you're going to have a good result. It doesn't work like anything. It doesn't work equally for everything. So uh, every tendon is different. You know, tennis elbow is different from Achilles. Upper limb is different from lower limb. So for lower limb tendon, which what I see with uh, runners, uh, it's a good, right from the beginning, when I teach courses, I make it very clear. It's a second line of treatment. So it's not something you give when you have uh, pain or symptoms. So uh, I've never given anyone shockwave if the symptoms are less than three months. That's one of the criteria, which all guidelines says, it's always done after three months of the symptoms and after completion of rehabilitation. So it's not a quick phase. So you've done your physio, you've done your rehab, and we expect changes in 10 to 12 weeks. And it's very reasonable. If, if you've got a runner who's been coming to you doing everything you've said, but not making any progress after 10, 12 weeks, it's very normal as a human to get frustrated. You, you're going to look for something else, isn't it? You, you know, and that's where I think Shockwave is a good option rather than jumping into more expensive and more painful option like steroid injections, PRP and things like that. So I think it's a, it's a step in the treatment ladder is I think the, as a therapist, the more you get experience, you're very comfortable to say, if, uh, like a patient comes in, I, I'm more than happy to say, if things don't work, I have a plan B. I have a plan C because I'm not expecting every patient to respond to physiotherapy and exercises. Although I love exercises and that's the gold standard. We have to admit that there is under the literature supports me. And if you look at the Achilles literature, there's at least 30 to 40% of patients who don't respond to rehabilitation after 12 weeks of uh, exercise. That could be many factors. Maybe they're not loading it enough, or maybe it's because of pain. Uh, maybe they're not interested, but patients are going to look somewhere else. And as therapists, we need to have a plan B when things are not moving forward. And we can't put all the eggs in one basket with just exercises and load management. Okay. So if I could just re- reiterate a little bit. So a runner will go into the clinic uh, yeah. if they do have a, a shockwave session. And it's kind of like a, a gun kind of thing. It places on the skin. It releases a shockwave multiple times a second, sometimes two or three times a second. And it's releasing this high focused uh, direct sound wave to try and stir up the tissue. Because like you said, sometimes a tendon might get say dormant where it's painful and it's sore, but everything that we throw at it treatment wise, it's just not responding in the same way. And it's just uh, needs to get stirred up in order to, like you said, kickstart that rehab. But one of the criteria for, shockwave would be you need to have a really good go at rehabbing it properly to start with. You can't just mismanage it for four five, six months and then think shockwave's the answer. Let's give it a, a good hard crack at doing some really well-designed rehab. And yeah. then if it's still remaining dormant and we're not seeing the results we're after, that's when we go up that treatment ladder, try another option and say, okay, let's 
kickstart it with shockwave and then go back to that evidence-based like real strength uh based rehab programs is that right of course of course we, we know that you know progressive loading uh shockwave the, i keep it simple with my patients say shockwaves for pain relief and kickstart the healing whereas the function on the long-term recovery and also getting back into that full sport can only come from exercise and progressive loading shockwave is not going to make you turn stronger and it's not going to get you uh into the performance area as well the two points i would like to pick up here is it's the timing so one of the reasons where you might have a bad reaction with shockwaves, the symptoms should be stable. So many times I will decline shockwave in my clinic because they come to me with very high levels of pain. So they're coming in like eight out of 10, they're limping, they're having night pain. That is a bad patient to really give shockwave because it's a painful stimulus. Uh, you don't want to be really be giving shockwave who's already very sore and tender. So sometimes I might give a bit of prehab before shockwave just to make their symptoms quiet. So for me, an ideal patient for shockwave is somebody whose symptoms are stable, sort of not more than five out of 10. They don't have any night pain at, at a decent level. So I like the sort of pain where it's more like achy pain than a sharp stabbing pain or throbbing mm. pain. So they should be fairly stable. The last thing you want to do is if a patient comes to me with pain nine out of 10, they're really struggling. So I say to them, you're paying me to give you more pain. You know, if, if you're nine out of 10 after shockwave, it'll be 12 out of 10. Why do you want that? So let's bring you down to, uh, and sometimes just the rehab might be enough. So a lot of patients, I might start them on rehabilitation just to get them back and they, they don't need a shockwave uh, to go forward. So the first point I would like to emphasize is the right selection at the right stage. So ideally you want patients who is not in a flare up, not in a reactive stage, more in a stable chronic. So let me give an example. So you could be a, a runner, like a 42 year old, uh, you know, half marathon runner or a triathlete who is saying like he can run for 45, you know, 40, 40, you know, 45 minutes, but after 30, 35 minutes, it starts aching and it's a bit more sore the next day, or it's more painful when he starts doing speed work. So that would be a perfect candidate for shockwave where it's not too sore. You can push hard. And the second thing is if you start giving shockwave and it's too sore, you get a bad flare up and then people say shockwave doesn't work. It's not because of shockwave because you didn't choose the right period to give shockwave. So one of the biggest limitations, I would say, right from the beginning, I can say, what are the key limitations of shockwave? The number one is it doesn't work in acute stage. So it's not a good option. So if somebody comes with very high levels of pain, you're not going to think of shockwave. And the second major limitation of shockwave is it doesn't work if the pain is diffuse. Uh, maybe that's one of the reason in tennis elbow, because the pain is not just localized. They say the whole arm hurts. So the more focused the pain is, the more likely you'll have uh, shockwave. So it's again, picking the right tool based on your clinical findings. Uh, and a lot of times I'm seeing shockwave used as a massage tool everywhere. It's a very powerful tool, but again, you need to pick your patient. So uh, as long as they're stable, they're chronic and they're willing for the rehabilitation, then you might have a good success uh, if you're going to throw in anyone. So I get a, a lot of patients who are disappointed once they buy the machine because they think it's going to fix everything, um, you know, because that's because the human body is more complex than that. So from, from my experience, and I think the literature also supports me, my sort of key areas where I would start, somebody who's, you know, like a clinic or starting on the shockwave journey, you know, it would be the, well, even for a runner, you know, what are the areas where you might get a good result? Will be heel pain, definitely plantar fasciitis, Achilles, both mid-portion and insertional, patellar tendon, lateral hip, proximal hamstring tendinopathy. That's pretty much, and I do treat, uh, might not be relevant for runners. I do treat a lot of groin patient on adductor tendon as well. So that might not be relevant for. So those are the areas 
where it's very reasonable to try shockwave, especially if they failed with good quality rehab. Okay. So we're looking at those areas that you listed and we're looking for a kind of low level, achy, high functioning mm. uh, yes. candidate who might be um, more suitable. So yeah. those who will respond less favorably or have a less likelihood of recovery would be those who come in with high levels of pain, just walking around. I meant at an eight or a nine, because like you said, that shockwave therapy is designed to irritate things and we can't irritate something that's already a nine out of 10. It's not going to respond too well or someone who's very acute, someone who's really flared it up over the past week or so, and it hasn't necessarily settled down just yet and haven't probably uh, sorted out other options that might be more effective. Yeah, perfect. That's uh, exactly. So, so it's not a quick fix. So I never give shockwave to a patient. On the other side, uh, it's really bad practice to give shockwave before, in my opinion, before a race, because um, I'll give an example. So I had this um, 42-year female uh, runner who had a nagging Achilles tendon, not a surprise there, and she um, uh, had a big event, uh, and she went had shockwave, uh, because I never give shockwave before an event for at least 8 to 10 weeks, because the problem with shockwave is it can numb the pain and you overdo it. So she had shockwave. Obviously, she had a good result. And then she did the marathon or uh, half marathon well. And after three weeks, uh, because she didn't have a pain, she overdid it. And she had a massive grade three rupture of uh, the middle gastro. Luckily, it was not the Achilles. So, and she couldn't run for 10 months. Um, so that is a great example where trying to use it as a quick fix. Sometimes pain is not a bad thing because it protects you from overdoing it because your body doesn't want you to exceed that speed limit. So uh, using it as a quick fix before an even is not a clever idea. I see this all the time. People try to want to do an even two weeks or one week before and they want to have a shockwave. Obviously, it might reduce your pain, but the tissue capacity is not improved. You can't improve a tendon in one week or two weeks. And you're just masking the symptoms and you're just asking for trouble. So I generally, I've never given anyone uh, like before me even at least you need eight to 10 weeks before you can make a difference. Okay. And I think that's a really nice segue into talking about the dosage of shockwave. And before we started recording, you did mention that you see a lot of cases where shockwave is underutilized and then sometimes it's overutilized and we need to try and find that therapeutic sweet spot. So um, can you enlighten us on this topic? Yeah. So I think it's, you know, this, if you look at most trials, what we know is there's a sweet spot. Like we can't put humans exactly one number. We know it's a range. Most things have a range. And what we know is the minimum dosage is three sessions. So I've seen some clinics offer just one session, two sessions. And that doesn't really do anyone any, any good because the effect of shockwave is cumulative. You need minimum of three to make any difference. So the way I give an example to my patient is it's like a cause of antibiotics. If your GP has given you uh, seven days of antibiotics. You're not going to stop after day three just because you feel great. You need to complete the whole thing. And what we know with shockwave is you don't make or break with one session. Uh, the, the thing changes, takes at least three sessions. So if you're going to have shockwave for any part of the body, the minimum dosage is three. And what we also know is we hit a ceiling effect uh, after five or six. So I've not seen any good study where it's beyond six. So for me, I think I sort of uh, keep it between that range, between three to six, three to five is pretty much your normal range. So ideally, you don't want to be giving less than that. So um, I was, I was, you know, we were discussing, I had this patient with chronic Achilles tendon who had 30 sessions. So this just, in my opinion, just abuse of the system and the body is 
it's the you know 30 sessions on Achilles, you know, two sessions back to back. So I see this quite common. People have 15 sessions, 18 sessions, 20 sessions. So it's being it's being used more like a massage tool rather than trying to kickstart the healing. So the way I explain to the patient is if you've been to the gym and had a very good workout, the full benefits of the exercise you get while you're sleeping, not necessarily when you're doing it. The same thing with shockwave is the full benefits of shockwave happens 12 weeks after your last session. So this is a very crucial point where people are a bit disappointed is when you finish, let's imagine you've got an Achilles patient and you're given three sessions, the full benefit of the treatment will take 12 weeks after the last treatment. So therefore, it's not a quick fix. So a lot of patients call me after three sessions and tell me like they're not happy. And I say to them, your body, the tendons and for the, you know, your collagen remodeling and everything, it takes a good 12 weeks. So we need to educate patients. Most patients, when I finish shockwave, they're only 20% better. So, and then you need to start loading them. So the way I, when I give shockwave with my patients, I, the way I say to them is, is three plus 12. What I mean by that is three weeks. You normally give once a week. So three weeks of shockwave plus 12 weeks of rehab. And if you're not happy with that, then I would suggest not to do it. So it's never three plus zero. It's always three plus 12. So three weeks or five weeks of shockwave plus 12 weeks of greater loading program. And that could be one of the main reasons where I get great results for me. I think it's a facilitator, a tool to reduce the pain and start loading them. So they're going to get the full benefit. So regarding the dosage, uh, anywhere from three to five. So how do I decide whether to go five or six? I keep a very simple rule is if your symptoms are very chronic, suppose let's have an example, like you have a runner who had plantar fasciitis for four months and you get another runner who had plantar fasciitis for uh, two years. The one who had it for more than a year is more likely to need more. So I keep it quite simple. It's not really based by science. This is based by, purely by my experience. Um, I tend to give more for patients where the symptoms are more than one year because I feel they need a bit more. Uh, but I've never given anyone more than six maximum. So that sort of is my limit. And I don't feel if a patient has not responded in that five or six, in my opinion, you're wasting your time with shockwave. Uh, either the, um, the diagnosis is not right. So the two, if a patient is not responding, that might be a good point to raise here. If a patient is not responding to shockwave, it's usually because of three reasons. One is uh, the diagnosis is not right. So a typical example would be, I've seen a lot of runners with plantar fasciitis have shockwave not improving because they have calcaneal bone stress reaction. It's a bone marrow edema. It's not plantar fasciitis. So they're having a lot of swelling because you see that in ultramarathon. So if things are not improving, it might be useful to get a diagnosis. That's number one. The number one, number two reason things don't improve is because uh, they are not given at the right stage. They have been given too, uh, too sore. They are already very sore. So you make them worse by giving them shockwave. And the third and the most important thing is they have not the rehab. They didn't have the rehab for 12 weeks after. So for me, the shockwave is a part of the package, you know, uh, trying to get that tissue healing and then getting it stronger by your uh, uh, normal thing. So it doesn't replace anything what you've done. It just because if, if you're given shockwave, you know, it's very quick. It just takes three minutes. So for me, it's a very simple tool. You just give it for three minutes and then you do everything else you're doing. So it doesn't change your management massively, but it's a quick add on just to kickstart the healing and then to get things going. Yeah. I like that you're repeating this message and I think it's worth repeating one that shockwave therapy is used as a tool. It's not the complete treatment and two, the, the message that people should realize is that shockwave doesn't heal the tendon. It doesn't make the tendon stronger. It doesn't make the tendon 
tolerate more capacity. What we're doing is kickstarting it so that it can tolerate and can respond and adapt to a progressive loading rehab. And so yes. it's not... It's like, a, it's like a reset button, really. You know, you just you hit a wall and you're frustrated. What you can't is, as you know, we've got a saying in English, you can't flag a dead, dead horse again and again. If a patient comes to me, so 99% of patients who come to me have had physio, they have seen two physios, they have done rehab, they have done exercise for five months, six months. I can't say to them, come on, let's do another three months. They just, they're fed up. And sometimes getting a bit of pain relief with shockwave is just a bit of a psychological, you know, it just gives them a window of hope and then they're more likely to do things. So sometimes we have to have the option for a plan B so that we can get going because sometimes you can hit a wall. I'm sure you have the patient like proximal hamstring. They have had done rehab for eight months, nine months, one year, two years. We can't just keep on saying, do it, do this, because humans, we have a finite amount of patience and hope. You, you, you know, they, they will, if you don't, as a therapist, if you don't offer a plan B, they're more likely to end up with unnecessary, unsafe procedures like surgery. And we know that we should not be sticking in uh, steroid or PRP into the tendons um, because, you know, one, the, one, we know that the evidence is very poor. And number two, we don't want to put the risk of ruptures. I don't mind putting injection for a sedentary population, for somebody who's like 60, 70 plus, but somebody who's like a runner, very active person, there is no justification for putting a, you know, a device, in, you know, like a substance inside the tendon, unless you've exhausted all options and they know the consequences, like, you know, ruptures and things like that. So for me, if you're done physio, you know, good rehab, three, six months, you could, if you finish shockwave, then if you're still struggling, maybe there might be a role for a surgery and injection, but that should come last because you can never undo surgery. Whereas if shockwave works, it works. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's it. You know, you're not going to lose anything by that. And like you said, you're going through that, uh, that treatment ladder and shockwave yeah. is somewhere on that ladder and it's somewhat low down on the ladder. Cause like you said, there's no risks. Well, there's not, not a lot of risks because you're not damaging any tissue yeah. as in yeah. if we were to get injections or if we were to have surgery, there's a whole lot of risks associated with it. That's why I'd be higher up on the ladder. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the questions. And I you can't, uh, sorry, you can't undo surgery and you can't undo injection. You know, what is done is done. Whereas, you know, the worst thing which can happen is shockwaves, it doesn't work. Or you might have a flare up for two weeks. You know, pa patients are okay with that. So as long as you know, it's a very low risk modality. And as I said, it's used in medicine for kidneys. It's used in the heart. It's used even in very sensitive structure for erectile dysfunction, a different type of thing called the focus shockwave for uh, you know, men's health. So it's been used in very sensitive parts of the body. So you're not going to damage anything with the long-term, um, you know, I, I guess if you keep on giving people 30 sessions, then you can end up damaging or causing more problem. But if you're just sticking to the guidelines of between three to five, you're very safe um, in uh, giving shockwave. Yeah. And if we're talking about safety, I've, I'm just fine to your input on this. I hear that a lot of injections for tendinopathy actually make the tendon weaker and actually puts them at yeah. risk of further damage. Do you, do you know much about that topic? Yeah. So I think what we know is steroid, you know, one, it sort of this causes the weakening of your tenocytes and increases the risk of rupture. So when a patient, for example, let's look at a tennis elbow patient, if they come to me who had a steroid injection, I will not give shockwave for at least 12 weeks because uh, uh, one, you know, they, they are high risk of ruptures after steroid injection. And number two, I don't want to stir up things. So generally it's good to give shockwave before, you know, injection. So a top tip for somebody who is using shockwave is one of the worst patients who will not respond to shockwave is somebody who had multiple injections. Suppose you had a patient, a lateral hip, 
who had three or four steroid injection, they don't seem to respond. And I've got very good research to back me up there is multiple steroid injection is a poor prognostic factor. So if you, if, if you get a patient who had four injection in the hip, three into the tennis elbow, you might not get the same response. So you need to be very honest with the patient and say, it's 50-50, you know, uh, it might not respond because I think the tendon changes the whole response, you know, the injection turn changes the response. So I'm not a big fan of giving multiple injections and then having shockwave. So it's best to f- exhaust shockwave first before you go in the injection route. But sometimes you don't have a choice. They've already had injections elsewhere. So, and uh, generally more and more people are not giving steroid injection because, you know, steroid injection increases the risk of rupture especially Achilles and things like that. So a runner should really uh, think very carefully before they put in any steroid. But the problem with the steroid is people, let me give you an example. There's a procedure called high volume injection or tendon stripping, HV, you know, it's high volume injection, HVI, or called tendon stripping. It sounds nice, fancy, and very scientific. But if you look at it, what they do is they put a lot of, um, you know, local anesthetic, but they sneakily put a little bit of a, a steroid as well within that injection. So what actually works is actually the steroid, which they put into that uh, tendon, especially Achilles. So I've seen quite a few patients where they had the high volume injection. They feel fantastic for the first two weeks and they come back after eight weeks with the symptoms back to where they were. And then uh, I've even seen uh, partial tears and ruptures following the procedure. So I think, you know, as a runner, you need to really be wary of putting any steroid near your weight-bearing tendon, especially your Achilles and patella, because, you know, we know mm-hmm. that it just causes, uh, you know, it's not worth it, really. Um, you're just asking for trouble. And, you know, runners won't keep quiet. If the pain is less, they're going to run and start sprinting. And, you, and we know that the ruptures are much higher, especially if you're 40-plus, especially a male. So... Uh, for an active person, steroid should be a last thing on your mind. And in fact, I would say, you know, you shouldn't really be doing that unless you have a very strong reason for that. Okay. I have a question written down here, but I think you've already answered it. I, I wrote down, uh, are there any precautions or any running injuries that are not appropriate for shockwave therapy? But I think yeah. you did mention like the, the ones that are, are really appropriate are the proximal hamstrings, the Achilles, the plantar fasciitis, the patella tendon. Yeah. And that that's where a lot of the research has shown benefits with. Yeah. Um, are there any other well, precautions? To, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Is like with any device, it comes with the manufacturer's, you know, safety precautions. So the general ones, if you look at the list, is pregnancy, obvious. Um, with pacemakers, it's only on the shoulder. So if you have a pacemaker, you can still treat your um, other parts. So. If you want to go more on the guidelines, there's, this, there's a website, the International Society of uh, Musculoskeletal Shockwave, ISMST. So if you Google ISMST, the, you'll come with a list of contraindication. But anyway, I'll go through the key ones. Uh, active cancer. Um, big one is patients who are taking warfarin and heparin. Shockwave just doesn't go well if you're on uh, blood thinning tablets. I've seen uh, you know where you get massive bruising. It's not worth it. So if you're on strong warfarin, heparin, blood thinning tablets, then generally not a good idea. And also uh, acute swelling. So I've seen uh, where people have given shockwave to the calf where they had a hematoma and then just ended up with a DVT. So the last thing you want to do with the swollen. So basically, if you see anything which is hot and swollen, uh, best not to shockwave. It's already inflamed. Why do you want to add more to it? So um, it should be stable. So anything which looks not right, you know, inflamed skin, swollen joints, swollen calf, acute injury. Um, I don't think there's much scope for a shockwave. In fact, I would say it's not really good practice to do that. You could look into other modalities rather than giving shockwave. Yeah. And you did mention the 
the chronic patient who's like two years down the track might respond Stable, quite well. Stable. Yeah. 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 Um, mm. Is there a stage where a particular client is very chronic? Are we talking like five years plus that are demonstrating certain characteristics that you think might not be appropriate for shockwave? Yeah. So I think if you look at the signs, the best patients are symptoms more than more than three months and less than one year. So the more chronic it becomes, for example, like if you had a lateral hip pain for four years, we know that when you have chronic pain, then you're going to, you're going to get a lot of changes, you know, central sensitization, you know, psychological issues, you know, anxiety, depression, and also uh, other associated factors with kinetic chain weakness. So generally, the more chronic they are, if, if, if a runner comes to me and they had like uh, lateral hip pain for four years, uh, of course, it's very safe to try shockwave, but I'm going to dampen their expectations say, see, you had it for four years. And once you have it for four years, it's very unlikely that whatever we do, we're going to make it zero, back to zero again. We can make it better, but please don't expect that I'm going to totally fix it. So it's really important to be honest, especially if they had it for uh, such a long time that, uh, because, you know, once pain becomes chronic, it becomes part of the whole fiber, isn't it? There are a lot of adaptation. So we need to be quite mindful of that. And one of the worst prognosis is if they have neuropathic pain, if a patient has pins and needles, numbness, a bit of altered sensation, I generally don't give shockwave because uh, neuropathic pain and shockwave don't go well together. So it should be more like a mechanical type of pain, more like an ache. If it's very sharp, very sensitive, too sensitive to touch, then I think shockwave is just going to irritate them. So so ideally you want a patient whose symptoms is you know more than three months. You know, you could sort of up to two years is okay, but once it becomes three years, four years, five years, I guess... Uh, it's reasonable to try, but don't expect anything great to, you know, massive things to happen, uh, or you might reduce the pain by 20% or 30%. So I think you're totally right. There's that sweet spot, you know, where you don't want to be too, too chronic. But I guess uh, once you have symptoms for four or five years, I think, you know, most things don't work, isn't it? There's no magic fix, you know, whether it's an injection or story, uh, you know, we just have to educate them on the pain signs about trying to, the coping mechanisms and things like that. And maybe try to make them pain a little bit better, but you know, we can't be talking about cure or fixing once you have symptoms for such a long time, isn't it? Like you said, you're dampening their expectations. And I think that makes perfect sense. As we know with chronic issues, it becomes less about the tissue and it becomes more about yeah. the body and the brain and how people think about that issue, how people start to associate like depression, anxiety, like all these emotive states with, um, levels of pain and yeah. like you said like if there's if someone is quite chronic and it does become more of a, a whole body thing it's less likely to be that localized pain it's more likely to be widespread which you said at the start of the interview which they don't really respond well if it's not that high focused in um pain area and yeah, yeah like you said it might need to if you're if you're five years down the track but you're still getting that achy localized pain and you are, I guess, responding to mechanical load. Like you, the example you used before, if someone does go for a run, a 5k run, and then they're flared up the next day, that's kind of responding to a mechanical load. Whereas on someone on the other side, if they are say frustrated and depressed and like highly anxious, and they're noticing their flare ups are something completely different. Their flare ups are on days where they are feeling particularly stressed or days where they're not getting a lot of sleep that's not responding to a mechanical load. And then I guess those expectations yeah. or the benefits of shockwave might start to skew in the, the less likely yeah. to respond. Yeah. And the problem is also is if the pain is very high and they're very sensitive, 
you can't give them the effective dosage because uh, it's too sensitive and they just flare up. So I find a lot of patients when they're very chronic, they just flare up when I give them and it just takes them three, four weeks. So normally this might be quite useful for the listeners is when you have a shockwave treatment, it's very common to be a bit sore for anywhere from three to five days, but within a week, it should be back to normal. Uh, that's why we generally have like once in a week gap. So the gap between session can be anywhere from seven to 10 days. It doesn't have to be, uh, where I'll give an example. Like if I treat a lot of petal attendants, so those usually are jumpers, like young men in the twenties, early twenties. And for them, they're fine within two days. Uh, so I usually treat them once in every five days. I, I, for them, once in 10 days is not necessary. So young, the younger you are, the fitter you are, you handle it, you, you manage it very well. So obviously your general fitness also has an effect on that. So if you generally decondition, you know, uh, having medical issues, poorly controlled diabetes, you will tend to flare up. So I think uh, you, you're only, your tendon is a good marker of your health. So if your general health is not great, then I don't expect that to happen massively as well. So it's looking into those factors. Um, and uh, if it's very diffuse pain, um, you know, poor sleep, other factors, then the last thing you want to do is uh, give a shockwave treatment, just make flat up things. So the more and more I, I get experience, I'm more confident to say no to patients. I would say at least 30 to 40% of patients who come to me for shockwave, I decline them uh, because they come to me too late or it's not appropriate or they're quite weak. Um, so for example, like, you know, I give you a case of where I treat on the NHS, uh, where I get a bit of deconditioned patients. So if they come to my clinic, they're struggling, they can't even do like 10 or 12 calf races. I won't give shockwave. They're not, they're not strong enough to have shockwave. So a lot of time you need a bit of prehabilitation just to make them strong enough to handle the shockwave before you can give them because it's a painful stimulus. Your body should be good enough to handle that. So the last thing you want to do somebody who is in a lot of pain, who is quite uh, decondition is to give them shockwave because your body can't handle that uh, stimulus. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it would be understandable if you have a really weak tendon and then you shockwave them and then they're flared up for 10 days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense. This podcast episode is sponsored by the Run Smarter Physiotherapy Clinic, which is my own physio clinic where I help treat a wide range of PHT sufferers, both locally in person and all over the world with online physiotherapy packages. In the years I've been self-employed as a physio, close to 70% of my entire caseload has been helping people with proximal hamstring tendinopathy, which is why I decided to launch this podcast. So if you're building upon your own rehab knowledge through the podcast, but still require tailored assistance, I'd love to be on your rehab team. Whether you are a runner or not, head to runsmarter.online to see your available options for working together. If you're still unsure if physiotherapy is right for you, or if you need a rehab second opinion, you can always schedule a free 20-minute injury chat with me. Find the free injury chat button on my website or in the podcast show notes to be taken to my online calendar to book in a time. The last question I have or the last topic I want to delve into, I see a lot of people with proximal hamstring tendinopathy and yeah. they are ones that get very chronic, very debilitating. A lot of the runners are very desperate and they, they want clarity. They want control. What can we do? You've said that proximal hamstring tendinopathy can be effective. Well, shockwave can be effective. Is there any considerations we can do in that three week phase or are there any um, proximal hamstring tendinopathy specific instructions that you can have for people to uh, increase the, the effectiveness? Yeah. So I think proximal hamstring is quite a funny area because it's quite deep, you know, quite, you know, hard to get in. So 
some practical point of view is it's quite an awkward awkward treatment to give when you give on that so i always have a chaperone when if if i'm treating a patient because you have to get straight into the sitting bone and i normally bring them to the edge of the table so that open up the space because it's pretty much medial to the sitting bone now the few considerations so a small group i would say quite a significant group of patients with proximal hamstring also get a bit of irritation of the nerve as well so if you got somebody who have a bit of sciatic nerve type of irritation from my experience they don't seem to respond with shockwave anything with nerve don't seem to do well so if you got somebody with complaining of bit of pins and needles bit of burning pain sharp pain maybe shockwave is not the best option there because it's they're having a combination of tendon pain and nerve pain you know because because it's so close to the sciatic nerve as well so and when you're giving the shockwave if you look at the anatomy it sort of uh, the sciatic nerve is around 3 to 4 cm lateral to the um, uh, tuberosity so when you're giving shockwave always always aim medially so don't go laterally and obviously if a patient says when you're giving when you're giving treatment i had i've seen two patients actually where they had raging sciatica after they have completed a course of shockwave where the patient uh, complained uh, having pins and needles while they having treatment so if a patient says they're getting pins and needles you just stop maybe you're not on the right spot you maybe on the nerve you should not get pins and needles or numbness so again best not to choose patient who have a neurogenic involvement with the sciatic nerve that's the key thing second thing is exposing it so that you can really hit the bone and you have to hit you have to dig in there's no it's one of the most i would say it's one of the most technically challenging um Uh, shockwave is the proximal hamstring because it's intimate uh, it's awkward uh, and you have to really uh, get uh, bang on the bone as well well another thing to remember here is is once i give that let's imagine that i'm giving 3 or 4 weeks of shockwave you i find it makes a big difference to reduce the sitting time so uh, direct pressure on that so i usually ask them to use like this sort of you know wedge shaped uh, you know like a, what you use for coccyx that sort of cushion you know where you have the cotton to reduce that especially when they if they involve a lot of driving and things like that to use the cushioning on that so they're not sitting and every 20 to 30 minutes to stand up you know uh, not to have the direct pressure so that's really important so the first thing is you know desensitize the region not to put direct pressure and a lot of times they go on internet and start stretching the hamstring and that just irritates things so Well, you're having shockwave. There's no point in doing your hamstring stretches or putting a foam rolling right on onto the bone. We don't want that. You know, we just want to you know desensitize the region. So a lot of time is education on reducing the. We don't want to say like sitting is harmful, but the way I say to them, you're just sensitizing the tissue around it. So uh, use a cushion, uh, su- you know, surface. Try not to sit on hard surfaces. Try to bre- take breaks every 20 to 30 minutes, um, and uh, you know, also try not to overstretch it. So I think the main thing is. desensitizing that sort of area by not direct pressure and because a lot of people feel like uh, you know putting a needle in or dry needling it you might feel a short term benefit but that irritates that more and more so uh, reducing that direct pressure reducing the sitting and as i said before stopping totally all hills and speed i usually stop that for a good 6 to 8 weeks no hills no speed uh, but they can continue with the flat that's fine uh the hills and speed usually irritates that so i think you have to be very very strict um let me give an example in lower limb the one where where i'm very you know aggressive in my treatment is patella tendon patella tendon can handle it very well so patella tendon doesn't seem to so i'm very aggressive uh, i'm not too worried about flare ups in the two other areas where i'm very very sensitive where i'm i'm i give them very you know very uh, sh- slow approach is proximal hamstring tendon and insertion of Achilles 
those two areas are very, they take much longer than you think. So clear advice, taking the time, insertion Achilles, they also get flared up quite badly. So those two areas, um, I'm not, it's definitely not easy, but as long as you, um, number one, don't irritate the nerve, you know, make sure that you know your anatomy, uh, try to go always medial rather than lateral, uh, reduce the sitting time, uh, best not to stretch it. We know that stretching doesn't, you might feel good for a minute or two, but it doesn't do any much harm and definitely stop the hills and speed. And uh, definitely it's not an easy one. So normally most tendons, if you, if it, when I, when somebody comes to my, with runners, so most lower limb tendon, I say three to six months. If it's an Achilles fetlar plantar fasciitis, I say three to six months, but proximal hamstring, I say six to nine months. That's what, you know, even with all my experience, I've not found a hack to make it quicker. It just takes time, you know, it takes six to nine months for you to really get a good results. There's nothing, there's no shortcuts there. As long as they know it's a long, long drawn process and we need to desensitize. So I think the way to progress would be is really make them tolerant to sitting, you know, uh, avoid local irritation and then build up the strength and then build up the volume and then keep the speed and the hills the last. So it's a very slow progression. So very hard to buy in people for that six to nine months, but you know, it takes time. So a lot of people, what they do is they go to therapists, try for one month, it's not working. They jump to the next therapist. So I see the sort of people go on to this conveyor belt. You know, I see this sort of, they've seen three therapists, they come to me and then they're disappointed because they thought I'll fix them in one month uh, and then they go around. So I'm, I'm sure you must've seen people where they, the runners, they go around in this sort of, they see six therapists because they don't want to hear that it's going to sit here, take such a long time. But in my, in my experience, uh, you know, it takes that good six to nine months. Would you agree or have you found a hack? Um, oh, I haven't found the hack, unfortunately. <laughs> the, yeah. I think that's uh, very good advice, though. In those three weeks, we're kind of desensitizing the proximal hamstring with sitting modifications, avoiding stretching, just taking it easy. But uh, when you get into that 12-week phase, we're slowly reintroducing some levels of loading. We're probably yeah. still avoiding... Uh, a lot of stretching, but we're seeing if you can slowly start to implement more and more sitting, more and more strength work, a little bit more running. But like you said, that the real powerful stuff, the, the plyometrics, the speed work, the hills that comes at the very end of rehab, once you're able to tolerate, once you have a really big base of uh, load tolerance and strength. And, and the key thing would be is not to change more than one variable at a time. So if you want to increase the distance, do that. Don't try to do the distance and the speed and the hills at the same time. The common mistake I see, the best way to get injured as a runner is trying to change two variables at the same time. So, you know, for me, I want to build up at least 30 to 40 minutes of uh, flat running with good strength, you know, a good hamstring control and things like that, general lower limb strength. And then for me, I think uh, for the way I always have done it is uh, b build up the volume first. Uh, then go to speed, you know, control speed work, and then the hills the last. With hip patients, I always keep the hills the last. And that seems to work for me, uh, you know, because trying to do everything at the same time just flags up things. So as long as you've got a sensible progression, you, you're you not going to flare up. And again, you know, even with the best laid plans, uh, I say to my patients, you know, I'm going to see you for eight months. I expect at least three flare-ups. That's normal. So uh, always pre-warn them that even with the best rehab, uh, it's just getting a cold or a flu, you know, you're going to get a little bit of uh, occasional like a sore throat or something like that. So you, you're bound to have a flare up on the journey. For me, I expect at least three flare ups in that six to nine months. Uh, and then the important thing is always, always give every patient, especially with tendinopathy, a flare up plan. They know exactly one, two, three, four, five things to do. So for them, it's not a shock anymore. So they know that if I get a flare up, so a simple flare up plan could be, you know, reducing your straight is, you know, taking painkillers for three to four days, 
you know, uh, getting into the pool, reducing the sitting time, using a cushion, going to some cross trainer, taking a bit of easy on the running for a week and then going back. So a very simple plan can make a huge difference. So they know that it's like an asthmatic has got an, or a, you know, somebody with an allergy has got an EpiPen. So they know that they have a backup. So every runner should have the plan plan because they know that it's going to happen. And we try to make them accept that it's part of normal recovery because a lot of people freak out when they get a flare up and say, oh God, I, it's all back to zero. I was so I was doing so well. And then I just screwed up by these things. As I said, that happens, you know, you're going to have one or two flare ups. So not to worry, just, you know, calm it down and just back you go on the bandwagon and you start rehab. So I try to downplay the flare ups and say, uh, I say to them on session one, you know, I could do it very, very slowly, but I can't prevent you from getting a flare up. It's going to happen. So let's get prepared for it so that you have a flare-up plan. Is it something you give to your patients, like a flare-up plan for most conditions? Definitely expectations. Uh, I mm-hmm. definitely agree with you with changing the variables, change one variable at a time, because we want to mm-hmm. learn how a tendon responds. And you don't learn anything if you try three things at once and it flares up. It's like, well, what yeah. flared it up? You have no idea. So yeah. documenting, writing things down, and just being very patient with implementing one thing after another. Uh, with flare-ups, I'd say that I do make sure they are aware that flare-ups are a part of rehab and make sure that they do have a, a flare-up plan in place. But just let them know that when we are rehabbing a tendon, we're trying to find this adaptation sweet spot. And that, like, if we under, if we hit it too low, then it's not going to trigger any adaptation. But if we treat it too aggressively, that's when the flare-up happens. But we know where the sweet spot is when a flare-up does happen because we know, okay, we're slightly below that right now. Let's, we learn from flare-ups. And we, yeah. as long as we learn from those flare-ups and adapt it, or modify your treatment as a response to that, then yeah. you're just learning along the way. And it's it's kind of like a good thing. Okay, now we know yeah. where your ceiling is. Yeah. And not to, as a therapist, as a, especially as a junior therapist, I felt really bad because I felt things were going well. And when you get a flat up, you feel sad for the patient and you feel like you're responsible. And I think it's just acceptable. It's inevitable. It's inevitable part of rehabilitation is to get the flat up. So you get that with OANEs, you get with back pain, you get with tendon rehab. So for me, it's a part of the journey. It just makes you... You, you appreciate the, your success better when you've been through that sort of rough patches. So um, as therapists, you know, it's good to be caring, but, you know, not to get too bogged down when your patients get flat ups, because, you know, that's as long as you pre-warn them on session one, uh, because most people can take it as long as they know it's normal, uh, mm-hmm. that you're not damaging it. So if you tell them it's normal, so the key message is just like we use it with any pain condition, it's normal, it's expected, and uh, it's not causing any structural damage just a bit of sensitivity around your tissue because it's just overloaded and your body just telling you maybe I did too much. And the, the key thing, which I think this might be highly relevant here is a lot of runners don't tell you their total uh, training load. So I've seen a lot of runners come back and say, I had a blood, I'm, I'm worse. I've not made any change. What they won't be telling you is they've been walking the dogs for four hours, uh, two times a week in the, in the weekend. They won't tell you the whole story. So a lot of patients don't tell you the whole load of they do. So sometimes what happens is they're doing the exercise well, they're doing the right rehab, but their other activities in their other areas of their life are spiked up. Or maybe they've started a new job where they are now walking 18,000 steps where they were doing only 5,000 before. So it could be, that's why you need to be like a detective, try to find out all areas of their life. How much are they walking? So all my patients send me a log, a log of the steps and their whole activity for the whole week. I, I, I keep a track of the whole life because as therapists, we can just stick to running and gym, but 
humans, you know, we, we, we have to look at the whole package, you know, what are they doing at home? How much are they working at home? How much are they working in the weekend? Are they doing like six Zoom classes, like HIIT training on the top of your exercise? So all these things adds up. It's the total load we need to look at. And obviously the psychological load as well, the sleep and other things. Because sometimes the patient will say, I didn't, I didn't do anything, but I got a flare up. It's not as simple as that. Maybe they've done a lot in the other aspects of their life, which they might not have imagined, you know, they've not thought to let you know. So again, is having that full um, connection with the patient where they can open up on all aspects of their life, you know, both both in the gym, but in the home and as well as with work aspects, because sometimes it could be nothing to do with the exercise you've given. It's what they're doing in the weekends, you know? So one perfect example, which we wind up would be, I had this plantar fascia, this patient, this is not a runner, but she was like in the late fifties. So uh, she was doing everything I was saying, but she was not getting better at all. So I just scratching my head and finding what, what was she doing? I think, I think she was from Nigeria or Ghana and where, because she had a large family show on every Saturday, she used to do like his group cooking for the whole family and just freeze them. And she used to cook for about nine hours standing wow. uh, barefoot. So that was the trigger. And there's no way, uh, you know, so I was digging my head and finding what was, why was she not getting better? But she never told me. And finally, I, uh, you know, found what was she doing the weekend. So sometimes there are some facts which they don't tell you, which could be one of the reasons things are not improving. So maybe they're doing something crazy in the weekend or they're just going six hours walk or uh, some speed work with the dogs or some back-to-back, -back, uh, you know, Zoom classes. So we need to know the whole story so that we can give their appropriate advice because patients sometimes compartmentalize uh, treatment. They just say some things to physio. They don't think they need to, we need to know the whole story. But yeah. as therapists, we need, to, we need to the whole life, isn't it? We can't yeah. compartmentalize this work and physio and running and things like that. I think a lot of the clients might not know that certain parts of their life are important when it comes to the rehab. Like you said, the cooking, and I do find... They could be logging their mileage. They could be logging their speed. They could be logging their steps per day, but it's not until you find out that they're sitting longer or going for longer drives or stuck in traffic where the proximal hamstring might start getting irritated. Or like you said, even just standing still can be a lot of load through plantar fascia and they're just not aware. So they don't share that information until people go digging and actually trying to work out uh, what they're doing outside of their, their exercise. Yeah, brilliant. And as I said, is for for it's uh, for me, it's the whole package, isn't it? Like your life, we can't compartmentalize. Your, the load is the load, whether it's a physical load, psychological load, as well as workload. The body uh, acts as one unit, so it's really important to get that uh, confidence. And sometimes it may take a few sessions before they open up. Uh, you know, they feel like it's relevant. So I guess you learn with the experience that with the as a therapist, you know, you're only doing exercise for that half an hour. Is that what happens to that 23.5 hours later? That's equally important, if not more important than actually what you're doing with the rehab, isn't it? Huh? Yeah, very, very true. Okay, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Benoit Matthew. Um, I've got some key takeaways, some dot points here that I have written down um, and just a bit of a reminder for you. So the first one that I wrote down was shockwave is kind of like a reset button. It has no healing properties. It's not going to um, improve the quality of the tendon. Um, if you wanted to improve the quality of the tendon, long-term strategy is always strengthening. I know we go on and on about it. Um, and first you meant to start rehab before doing shockwave, see how it goes, see how you respond. If it's quite dormant and not reacting to anything, any stimulus, any rehab that we're giving it, that's when we try shockwave. Uh, it's not designed for irritable patients. I know um, PhD 
chronic PhD can get extremely irritable. Um, it's probably not the the most suitable and we need to wait for things to settle down, calm down before um, we can try some shockwave therapy. It needs to be stable. It needs to be quite localized. It can't be this widespread pain um, and it needs to be chronic. It can't just be a two-week injury that you think might shockwave might help with. So like Benoit said, it's about picking the right person, but it's also picking the right person at the right time of their rehab because they could be, um, we need to find the right time, that sweet spot of when it's not too irritable, but irritable enough and just not getting better. And yeah, um, which does require a bit of insight and experience. Um, Minimal dosage. So three sessions as a minimal dosage before you can actually work out whether you're responding well or not. And maximum five to six sessions. You shouldn't be going beyond that if you're not really responding and people aren't really giving you the loading exercises associated with it. Um, it's not right for you and you're just not responding. I've had people um, have shockwave, you know, 15, 20 times plus, and they keep buying into this belief that it can get better with more and more sessions. This is not going to work. Um the other, the other point I wrote down was Benoit mentioned there's three reasons why you wouldn't respond to shockwave. One, either the diagnosis isn't correct. Two, you're not in the right stage of that um, rehab or the right stage of that tendinopathy. And three, it's not associated with any loading. That people just think that shockwave is going to heal the tendon. They do shockwave and they think it's going to get better. It just doesn't because they haven't compiled in or mixed in some sort of loading program. So that was those three points. Um, what else do I have written down? Um, if it is more chronic, like if you've had it for four or five years, uh, there is more sensitivity to those areas. A lot of the pain or a higher percentage of the pain might be psychologically driven. The brain changes and we're just not dealing with the tissues at the same relevance. And this goes back to our pain science episodes. And once we start listening to all these episodes, you'll find that these patterns tend to start tying into one another. And this is the perfect example because when we know we do know with pain science and chronic pain now that we've listened to those episodes that the brain has massive influence on what how we perceive pain. And the longer you've had chronic pain for, the more those the brain patterns, the neural connections tend to wire up for signaling pain, it becomes overly sensitized and um we're now dealing with the brain perceiving pain in a different way. Your relationship with pain and your behavior towards pain is completely different. And so shockwave might not be as effective because we have those brain changes. And an example that I can think of, I was just listening to an audio book on um, pain science yesterday. And they were talking about um, how chronic low back pain patients um, sometimes undergo surgery because they have like say a, an x-ray or an MRI and show some like degenerative discs or um, a nerve um, impingement or something and they decide to go under the knife and get surgery and they've had pain for say 10 years and it doesn't do a lot like surgery won't do a lot because we're we can change the structures of the back but we're not changing the structure of the brain and so um that's why we see this discrepancy of why isn't it getting better? Like everything structurally is fine, but I'm still experiencing pain. And uh, that's a perfect example of that. So um, you can like, if you are, if you do have chronic 
PhD, then Shockwave, we can give it a go. It's very low risk. It can make it can make things better, but we need to dampen our expectations. Um, it's still reasonable to try. Uh, the last one I have written down, uh, have a therapist who is experienced with treating PhD, like experience with administering Shockwave uh, for PhD. Because like we said, there are sciatic nerves very close to the tendon, as we, we know, and we don't want to have someone who's a bit inexperienced and start irritating the sciatic nerve um, because that can be unpleasant and um, can be unavoidable if we choose the right therapist. So just ask them, have you had much um, experience? Because I know that the sciatic nerve is quite um, close to that tendon and we do know that it can irritate the sciatic nerve if it's not in the right place. So, and then if you are during the session getting some pins and needles or numbness down the leg, um, we should cease the shockwave, change the location, um, or just try something else. So uh, keep that in mind as well. So those were the points that I had written down. Um, that's pretty much all you need to know on shockwave. I'm very happy with how comprehensive and um, insightful this interview has been with Benoit. Um, I hope you enjoyed as well. Hope it answered all your questions. Um, so I look forward to bringing you the next episode and we'll keep learning together. Thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab. If you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format, then go ahead and check out the Run Smarter podcast hosted by me. I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description, and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power. Oh, 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 oh,